Buddy, and welcome to another episode of ADD Storytelling. My name is Tucker, and this is a podcast in which we discuss the myths, legends, and stories of our time, the past, and the future in no particular order, and sometimes with less than perfect focus. I already said my name, but I am joined by our diaphanous and neurodivergent host, Maddie. Maddie. Hi. How do be? I do be blah. Yeah. Yeah. How are you feeling energy-wise? Okay. Yeah? Yes. I kind of... High, high or low? Lower end energy. Well, that's good, because you're about to get tuckered out. Good. Okay. Yeah, yeah. You're not leading this one, are you? No, I'm not. This is, this is Letting the... Letting Jesus take the wheel? Yep. Jesus take the wheel. This that's is how I see myself. This is um, episode four of Tuckered Out, episode 12 of podcast. Yeah, that's one way of putting it. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So, you feeling it? You ready? Ready to give up all, give up the reins? Lay back and let my soothing tales take you away into another land. Yeah, I'm so excited to Uh, just listen. God, and you seem like you are. Yay, listening. (laughs) I've always wanted to just listen. Tonight's your chance. Uh, I did so well in lecture hall in college. Didn't make any embarrassing squeaky noises on all the ancient chairs of the lecture hall that echoed very loudly. That wasn't me at all. You should have just done what I did and taken an Arizona iced tea can and filled it with boxed wine. That made lecture halls so interesting. But I also got pretty tuckered out from that. Wow. I don't know how you would have even learned anything in lecture. One might say I didn't. But here I am. Providing edutainment. There was one class that we had to do that I think you got out of because, I don't know. <laughs> what? How would you know this? Is this? Okay, I'm interested. So for the art major, we had to do this mandatory class, and it was only during one quarter, and it was called Writing for Artists. And yeah, I didn't have to do that. It was a requ- that sounds fun, though. It was a graduation requirement. Yeah, I think that was fulfilled by a uh, like one of my many history of art classes because there was a shit ton of writing and all those no it was like for art majors you had to do it to graduate and it was the worst class i've ever taken why was it bad this is good radio keep going i guess it's not radio good podcast this is content why was it bad um because we had to write a bunch of artist statements and then also do our websites and they would just have other people's websites like show up and present. So this one girl who really wanted to volunteer, she basically was a photographer of roadkill. So all she did was take pictures of rotting things. And so her whole thing was just like this gore fest of dead animals. Sounds um, absolutely fantastic. Well, nobody got to choose whether or not they wanted to see it projected. That's fair. So that was kind of unfortunate. It reminds me of this weekend when I went and volunteered on a farm and someone asked me my consent or like, do you, they literally said, they called out and like, want to see something gross? They didn't sound like that, but in my memory, I'm giving them that voice. I was just like, yeah, yeah, I do. Like there's a pile of intestines over under this tree. And I was like, I'm into that. 
Yeah. And then I made a friend because we saw entrails. That would have been nice. Yeah. To have a choice. Entrail consent? Yeah. Nice. Well, do you consent to learning about today's topic? Yeah, what is today's topic? You definitely know what it is. You don't need to yes and that. (laughs) (laughs) That's my question to you. What is today's topic? No, it's not. You're leading it. Oh, right. No, I fucked that one up. (laughs) What are you talking about? I'm just used to being the sub in this scenario. (laughs) It's weird. It's weird doming the podcast. Today's topic is... (laughs) I mean, the topic is magic, possession, diseases, and the gin. And if you don't know what the gin are, I guess we'll start there. Maddie, what is your working knowledge of what a gin is? In folklore, in religion, and in in a historical context, I'm gonna say not huge, mostly fantasy context of of things. Can I can I relate to Jin? So like, can grant wishes if enslaved in a container of some sort, a spirit that has magical power that has caused great chaos over the century for some reason. Yeah, yeah. I mean, yes and no. They're Arabic not... in nature, <laughs> like that part of the world, Arabic sort of. Yeah, yeah. Arab pre-Islam, what we now call the Middle East, generally Persian Empire, yeah. Saudi area. That that area. Yeah. I think mostly All of climates. Egypt, which is desert, and the Nile, which is like always, and then I guess oases, oasis. It's hot over there. Okay. I think. It is hot, yes. <laughs> okay, so hot is the climate that you envision the djinn coming from. Hot. That makes sense, given that the djinn are considered to be beings made of fire, as opposed to humans, which are ma- beings made of earth. And water. No, that's a, that's a separate uh, spiritual entity in this pantheon, or mm, world of myth. But humans are like 98% water. Mm-hmm. But. Uh, are we talking about like science? T- or? No, we're not talking about science. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, what we were just saying was we're talking about myth. So let's start with what is myth? Because I just love this quote. Okay. No, you sound pretty stoked. So uh, this, along with several other. No, uh, what's your sources for today? Tucker? That's what I'm about to do. Great. Okay, I'm finally playing by the rules, and you cut me off mid-source sighting. Sorry, I thought, I didn't know I'm, what you were doing. I'm in line. Okay, go. You, you got this. Yeah. I'm being a responsible researcher today. Yeah. Anyway, our sources today come from the two separate books, first being Jealous Gods and Chosen People, The Mythology of the Middle East by David Leeming, and the second and far more interesting tome is called Islam, Arabs, and the Intelligent World of the Jinn by Amira Elzine. Oh, I had a girl in my class growing up named Amira. She was cool. Sorry. That was very good, though. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you, Maddie. It's relevant information. (laughs) (laughs) So, um, there is a quote from David Leeming's book that I thought was a would be a good way to start this out. So if I may, to so-called fundamentalists of any given culture, the religious stories of that culture are literally true. While stories of other cultures and religions are understood to be mere folklore, 
What is in common usage we in fact be which in common usage we in fact mean by myth. For others, both within cultures and outside of them, myths are seen as important metaphorical constructs reflecting understandings that cannot be expressed in any other way. For any for many mythologists, these literally false stories are quote true in the sense that they form an actual real part of any culture's identity. What are Hopis without the Kachina myth? The ancient Norse without Odin, the Greeks without the deeds of Apollo, Dionysus and Odysseus. Christians without the resurrection. I just found that fun. Anyway, let's start off with a definition then. <laughs> After that last definition of myth. Okay, a myth it, is a story that people believe is true that sometimes. That is fundamental to their culture. And fundamental to their culture. Which is different than it just cultural. being like a legend or a folktale. Myth is the bedrock of a culture. When we say that things like the jinn are mythological, I don't want it to come across as in any way an othering sort of thing, as being from a place that is not widely... I mean, it's from a place that's not widely understood by Western audiences, but that doesn't mean it's something to be taken as anything less serious than it actually is, because it's very much a... true. The, the jinn are seen as integral to Islam and Arabic belief and culture, and they're very much a intertwined and active presence in daily life and spiritual belief. So when I say they're mythological, that's not like the way, you know, the Mothman is mythological in America, because, I mean, we don't really have culture, so it's hard to really come up with a good analog, but... It's like a cryptid. Yeah, which is bullshit. Jinn are serious. That's what I'm trying to say. Okay. Let's plow forward. <laughs> you ready to plow? I just wanted to give that like pre-caveat before the plow. So as long as we're good to plow, give me a wink. <laughs> that was a very good wink. <laughs> like you could hear it. Maybe that got caught on the mic. Merriam-Webster's dictionary explains the term magic is derived from the Greek magus, which describes a sorcerer. The Greeks seem to have taken this word from Persia, where it referred to a member of the priestly class which indicates magic was officially part of the religion of the ancient Persian Empire. Isn't that fun? Magicians are doctors. Doctors are magicians. And that's something that's going to be very important throughout this episode, is to remember, magicians, as we see them now, are, you know, long-sleeved, you know, with magical owls and annoying cats like the one we have here. Are like you talking the, about like a Merlin's beard kind of wizard? Yeah. What kind of wizard are you talking about? Like Mickey and Fantasia? Simultaneously <laughs> Mickey and Fantasia plus like new age hippies. Okay. So coming out of Persia, the term magus refers to a magician as a healer. Magical beliefs and practices were a primary and acknowledged part of the daily life of the people of this area. It was neither inferior to religion nor superior to it. People always believed in unseen spiritual entities such as gods, demons, daemons, and the jinn, and that they went into the bodies of humans to injure them, bring madness upon them, or even kill them. They envisaged all diseases, major and minor, from plague to fever and even headache, to be brought about by male and female demons against whom the magician battled as a fighter. So, they're a mage healing class. Hmm. Yeah. Mage, like a druid. Yeah. Or a paladin. Get the fuck out of here with the paladin. No, they're not. In like an RPG, they would be like a paladin. No, they would just be a mage, a white mage. Paladin are, they're just all about killing in the name of God. 
they don't heal. This is an argument that will eclipse the whole podcast if we go forward. Okay. I guess I don't really know. I don't know or care. Right in. Even though. If you have a strong opinion. It won't be, light. It won't be stronger than mine. In the religious and magical t- texts of the ancient Near East, people picture the human body as the locus of fights between good and evil spirits. This all comes once again from The World of the Jinn by Amira El Zine. So let's kick on over to ancient Egypt and some of their takes on the jinn and magical healing, shall we? How's that sound? Okay. Okay. So, as we all, I feel like it's safe to assume, know the Egyptian, Egyptian pantheon was chock-a-block full of righteous dudes and dudettes and himbos and thembos. There's a lot of people at play in that religion, correct? Right? That what we're thinking? Multiple gods? Yeah, they got a lot of them. And, like, deity-like figures? Mm-hmm. Yes. True. All right. So that, we got that base. The polytheistic situation. Oh, big, big poly community. Yeah. So, from there, some gods were considered to be more protectors than others. Uh-huh. Yes, such as the bull man and god dwarf, Bess or Bizu, which was, who was also known as kind of a savior deity. Bess was often pictured with an ugly face to drive away the evil forces that resided in the body and were bringing about sickness or madness. It is thought that Bess, quote, fulfilled the same function as the hideous and sometimes obscene gargoyles found on many Christian churches. So in the way that, you know, gargoyles are meant to protect and drive away demons with how fucking butt-ugly their faces are and busted their mouths are, Bess served that role, but as a doctor. Okay, thank you for filling in what the purpose of a gargoyle is, because I actually don't know, but I know that they're everywhere, and I like gargoyles. Oh, yeah. But I just don't know what they're for. Yeah, you put what essentially are, like, they're scare demons. Creepy creepers. Yeah, to keep your demons out. Keep the extra demons away. Mm Mm-hmm. Okay. And also, they tell vampires who's come into the building. Sorry? As we learned in what we do in the shadows. Oh, no, those were watchers. Yeah, 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 yeah. They were gosk. They they spread that hot hot goss. Yeah, those were gargoyle things. That's true. All right. It is believed that the god Thoth, who we will most likely talk about more on a later episode because Thoth is the flip side to Set, the Egyptian trickster god, and there's a lot of goodness there. But Thoth, who was altogether a magician and healer, wrote the majority of the books on magic in ancient Egypt. Many of these books were found in temples, and they include spells, incantations to drive away the evil spirits, hymns, and rituals to perform to exercise the spirit dwelling in a human. It is worthy to note the magical parts of the surviving Egyptian papyri mixed rational cures and spells. This led some contemporary scholars of ancient Egypt to assert that it is even doubtful whether that there was a time in ancient Egyptian history when medicine and magic were not complementary parts of a doctor's skills. They're always working together. Magic and healing. Yes. Magicians are healers. Healers are magicians. There's this kind of union of actual scientific research and work that works hand-in-hand with theological and esoteric belief and thought. So moving on now from ancient Egypt, we're going to Babylon and Assyria. A lot of page-turning in this episode. Yeah. Tucker's using a book. Two books. (laughs) It's our book ASMR. Yeah. So when it comes to Babylon and Assyria, I wanted to point out that the magician in Babylon used instruments often compared to weapons. For each human illness, there was a different weapon and a corresponding spirit to be fought with said weapon. Once again, 
mage class. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The exorcist was, and we're saying exorcist here instead of doctor, I guess, because they're exercising a demon as well as a malady out of their patient. <laughs> the exorcist was responsible for chasing away the spirits, and it was vital to identify the god of the demon that sent the illness and to call him or her by name and to search for a matching healing. So, for example, Utuku. The demon Utuku, for example, was extremely vicious and with several fever demons assailed the throat. There were other demons associated with fever too, such as, such as the demon Asag, whose name is connected to fever in the po- poetical enumerations of diseases. So in the writings of the Babylonians, diseases had the same names or corresponding names to demons. So it was literally fighting a illness was fighting a, a creature. That kind of makes sense. It. If you don't have a microscope and you're like, this is an unseen thing that's causing an affliction, a demon is just as good as explanation as anything else because you can't see the viral whatever. Additionally, some gods were known to heal the sick, like in ancient Egypt with Bess. Uh, if the patient prayed to them and promised to offer them a gift, such as the gods Ea and Marduk, and Marduk, I want to point out here, uh, also known as Ishtar, was one of the main gods of Babylon, who was also depicted as having the head of a bull, like Bess. So there's more or less, it's more or less it's easy to say that a line could be drawn there as Bess being a future incarnation of Marduk or Ishtar. So, are are Bess and the other one, like, related to healing in some way? Yeah, in both cultures, they're considered to be gods that are highly associated with the act of healing. Okay. Both associated with healing, and they're both uh, depicted as having the head of a bull. And though that is a fun through line, I will also say that, like, bovine imagery is just everywhere at this time in history and especially in the Fertile Crescent. More often than not, the main gods have cow features. That's just a thing. But I do find it to be a fun through line. Okay. I think they're probably related. I don't even really know what the term through line means. I can divine what that means, but... (laughs) Now I have uh, an early Assyrian incantation, which a priest would speak in order to rid a patient of the disease of an evil spirit, and I was hoping that Maddie might uh, give us a dramatic reading of it. Because okay. I found it to be extremely entertaining when I read it by myself. Well, it's translated, so... Yeah, yeah, I'm not going to have you speak ancient Assyrian. I don't know if we can. Okay. And to the side of the wanderer have drawn nigh, casting a woeful fever upon his body. A band of evil hath settled on his body, an evil disease on his body they have cast. An evil plague hath settled on his body. Evil venom on his body they have cast. An evil curse hath settled on his body. Evil and sin on his body they have cast. Venom and wickedness have settled upon him. That's the end. Wow. Okay. So when I read that silently to myself, I thought it was just kind of funny that it went in such a cyclical pattern of just hitting the on his body, on no, his body. No, it builds over. an intensity. You can it tell. It does. And there's also something mesmerizing and hypnotic about it when I hear it out loud. The repetition. Yeah. That's tight, actually. I thought it was going to be funny, but it was just kick ass <laughs> wow <laughs> that was a fun surprise for me too thank you maddie i got good grades in drama in high school yeah i used to be a slam poet but i've never got to hear that who me yeah 
Oh, I only did that for extra credit. But I would go to Poetry Slams. Ons of pre-Islamic Arabia. How's that sound? That sounds more relevant. Yeah, does it? Okay. <laughs> <laughs> All right. One belief held by pre-Islamic Arabs in the region that we now know as Saudi Arabia was that the plague was also uh, a result of interference from demons or jinn. They actually referred to the plague as the spear of the jinn. Some uh, ways of warding off this uh, salacious little bout of infection would be to bray like a donkey before entering a village. This was said to ward away evil jinn. Also, a common uh, a uh, common bulwark against uh, the intrusion of evil spirits was to wear the heel of a rabbit upon upon one's neck like a protective amulet. Oh yeah, a rabbit's foot. Lucky rabbit's foot. Exactly. Did you ever have one of those? No, but there's. I love learning about this shit because there's so much stuff in ancient Islamic tradition that the Europeans and just the world at large built upon, and is still a like. There's still touchstones of it in. Just popular, like, popular culture and, like, common superstitions. It's so interesting. Yeah. I had a, I think I want to say, like, a neon pink rabbit foot. Of fucking course you did. At some point. It's like you were wearing the, the hoof of one of, like, My Little Pony's friends. They That's don't have I'm... rabbits in My Little Pony. Apparently they have a queer couple in My Little Pony now, and... The horses are, like, anthropomorphic in the sense that they're, like, people. Oh, you don't say. It's creepy. Yeah. I think you need to go back and say that it's not the queer couple that's creepy. It's the My Little Pony. It's the fact that in the animated show My Little Pony about ponies, that all of the horses just look like people. Yeah, 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 yeah. But, no, like, colorful. Yeah, the fact that they have a queer couple is probably, like, the only redeeming part of that show. Yeah, it's cute. I mean, kids like it. Good for kids. Whatever. Cool. Songs. Glad we, had, glad we had this little My Little Pony moment. That's our pony corner. Yeah. Moving out of the pony corner, let's get to a linguistic history fact. Okay. Are you excited? Because so I'm excited. excited. Pre-Islamic Arabs believed evil jinn bring madness upon people as well. In fact, the term majnun, majnun meaning possessed, mad, or insane in Arabic, literally means to be possessed by a jinn. The term jinn and majnun both are derived from the same linguistic root, JNN. That's a fun history fact. But actually, now I feel uh, compelled to bring up the other fun linguistic history fact of the word jinn itself, which is where we get the word genie. Or sorry, no, of course that is. Damn it. I messed up my <laughs> delivery. It's where we get the word genius. Jinn mean a lot of different things in a lot of different contexts, but in some regards, one's genius is said to be the manifestation of their spiritual jinn, either counterpart or overseer or that spirit from the other invisible realm that lives within them. It's a manifestation of their higher self, which is where we get the word genius. I read a book when I was young that we had two that. twin siblings who were part jinn, and they were geniuses. And they had this conversation about the plural of the word genius not being of Latin root and of actually being Arabic. Therefore, the plural form of genii is not relevant because that is only for Latin-based words. And so it's geniuses. Huh. Wow. Linguistic history corner was really fun tonight. 
So one might ask, how would a djinn bring madness upon a person? Ask. Go ahead and ask. Ask it, Maddie. Maddie, ask the question. Maddie. Can you hear the cat purring? Because the cat is our biggest SMR. It's his little, little twinkles and the little purrs. Yeah, I think they could hear that. <laughs> they could hear it if you put the mic that close. Yeah, that's good. <laughs> so, ask the question. How does the jinn bring madness upon people? So glad you asked. <laughs> In some narratives, pre-Islam, one can find a relationship between the sounds uttered by the jinn and the loss of reason. The jinn avenge their dead by inflicting upon humans strange sounds resembling the siren songs, which bewitch sailors. We all know those. We've what? all had fun with those. So wait, they're like the just Funayuri. like projecting. They're projecting weird sounds so that people have to like. I don't know. They, they freak project out when sounds they hear to it? drive people mad. The sounds produced by the jinn could be similar <laughs> to the pounding of a drum, the buzzing of certain flies. I like the use of the word "certain flies" there, because it's certainly not all flies; just some flies. Some yeah. flies are the sounds of jinn. Other flies are just flies. That's good. I love that a lot. Or a Twitter, or simply a. That's fun. That aged interestingly. Or simply a loud voice coming from an invisible source the Arabs called Hatif, which means a call from the unseen. Do you think it was the Twitter that was like, or do you think it was like a Twitter like, (laughs) I think of it more of a. Because, you know, like when you're in a bathroom stall and it's been silent for a long time from the one next to you, but you've seen that person's feet. And then after like 14 minutes, because you're just hanging out in there playing like Candy Crush, you just hear. <laughs> Sometimes the jinns simulate the sounds of the winds in the sands or a thin murmur. The jinns' music is also called Azif, which I got really excited about and went on like a 40 minute hunt for music under the term, like under the title Azif. I searched everywhere, couldn't find shit, just a bunch of stuff by a metal band that like calls themselves Azif. But nothing was, no no fun shit. Moving on. The Arabs of pre-Islam invented a whole set of exorcism procedures to protect themselves from the evil actions of the jinn on their bodies and minds. Ah, relevant. Such as the use of beads, incense, bones, salt, and charms, written in Arabic, Hebrew, and Syriac. Or the hanging around their necks of dead animals' teeth, such as the fox or cat, to frighten the jinn and keep them away. Kind of like the rabbit's foot, but now we're using foxes and cats. I swear to God, if this cat doesn't start behaving, I'm going to cut his foot off and wear it around my neck. Oh, he's sitting next to us. He's so cute. He's being a cute meow right now. I still want to cut his foot off. Others would give their ch- children names they thought would scare off the djinn, especially the names of animals. And I have a little note written in the margin here. Would those names be the names of a fox or cat? Hmm. Seems like that would make sense, right? And so then I looked up the Arabic translation of the word fox and Arabic translation of the word cat to see if they were names that I've heard in the world and in my life. And I don't think they are. But the one for cat is a fun through line again because it's spelled in English Q-A-T. So did we get the word cat from Arabic? Probably. That's awesome! Especially since too, the Q sound could be like a K. Cat. Cat. Could be like a K sound sometimes even in English. So. Pre-Islamic Arabs believe the jinn sometimes take the shape of animals to hide their identity from humans. One wonders then how it is possible to ascertain an evil jinn is not dwelling in one of these animals. One could read this behavior, though, as the pre-Islamic Arabs wanting to utilize the, quote, animal power before the jinn did, 
In any case, it is interesting to see how both humans and jinn exploit the animal strength and mystery to gain power. The humans, wearing the animals, naming their kids after animals, and the jinn, looking like them and spooking them. And tw- so, twittering and sounding like flies. Does it say what kind of animals that the jinn turn into? Any and all. Uh, they're animorphs. The animal realm seems to be immediate in a way between the human realm and the intermediary realm of the jinn, also known as El Gaib, which I want to take a moment now to define. El Gaib, in Islamic belief, is the invisible and unknowable world in which powers, figures, and cultures exist separately from our own plane of existence. As Harry Spitzer puts it, for Muslim believers, Al-Ghaib gives the entire universe a dynamic structure and, le- and allows readiness and acceptance of anything that might occur, whether peculiar, fantastical, or mundane. This means accepting that an ifrit can possess, steal, meddle, and murder. But it also means living side by side with an entire realm filled with possibility, miracles, and hope. In the context of El Ghaib, the conviction that the jinn could somehow intervene in Muslims' lives is still part of their general belief in, in the simultaneous existence of the invisible and visible realms. In medieval times, Muslims thought jinn could enter their houses, run on the streets, and even make their way into their food and drink. They claimed they have felt their presence, and that is why some Muslims search for ways to neutralize them through magic. It is reported that the Prophet Muhammad himself once said, quote, Cover your utensils and tie your water skins. And close your door and keep your children close to you at night, as the, as the jinn come out at that time and snatch things away. Um, from that source, there is an additional quote that says, "Jinn can drink from any vessel, thus the need to always cover them." No open containers. Yeah, it's an <laughs> you can't have any it's open the original open container law. Yes. Okay. You're catching on. You just need a lid for all your pots. Get a pot lid. <laughs> So at this time, there was a commonly held practice to purchase, create, or commission protective amulets uh, to the people that would keep them safe from, you know, gin pestering, gin abuse, gin drink spiking, that sort of thing. And one particular group that many in the pre-Islamic world would go to were the Jews who would put together magical spells for them. Muhammad forbade the use of incantations containing Hebrew or Sayyidic words, as well as any spell not in agreement with the teachings of Islam. What made Muslims strongly reckon evil could intrude in their lives was the account, was the account telling Muhammad himself was once bewitched. You're saying that people used to buy amulets and protective charms from people of like a Jewish religion or ethnicity or both, and then yes. they stopped doing that because Muhammad's like, no thanks. In the Quran, it's strongly emphasized that one can be healed through belief. So, like, it's, it's foundational to their faith that through their faith, they can heal. I believe that's why, as the story that I'm omitting here kind of gets into, it's strictly through the power of God that one can be healed, even in terms of, like, while still performing magic, but it has to be the magic that is their faith-based. Okay. If that makes sense. It sounds like something they wrote in the Quran so that they would have a stronger follower, follower base of Islam 
in the same way that like Christianity broke off from Judaism. They're like, don't do the way that you were doing it before. This is the Jesus way now. Actually, you know what? I mean, yeah, I'm going to tell the story. Might, might I read to you this tale? It starts with Aisha, who was the prophet's wife, recounted magic was worked on the prophet. So he began to imagine he was doing an action which he was not actually doing. Oh, wait, and I also, I wrote here, would that be like a fever state, perhaps? Delirium? I'm trying to, like, look at this through a modern lens. Like, if you're sick... That sounds like a hallucination. Hmm. A, a, a hallucinogenic break. state. Yeah. Which can be brought on by fever. Yes. You can have hallucinogen-type things from a strong fever. We've all been there. Because your brain's cooking. Oh, yeah. Baby. One day, he appealed to God for a long period and then said, quote, I feel that God has inspired me as to how to heal myself. <laughs> Two persons came to me in my dream and sat, one by my head and the other by my feet. One of them asked the other, What is the illness of this man? The other replied, Magic was worked on him. The first asked, Who has bewitched him? The other replied, Labi Dibin Awawam. The first one asked, What material has he used? The other replied, A comb, the hair gathered on it, and the outer skin of the pollen of the male date palm. Which I wanted to point out. This sounds like, asking for the specific materials sounds like the Babylonian and the Assyrian emphasis on, remember, you need certain weapons in order to fight certain fever slash demons. There's a heavy relationship between those two. The first asked, where is that? The other replied, it's in the well of Darwan. So the prophet went to the well and then came back and said to me, its date palms, the date palms near the well, resemble the heads of the devils. I asked, did you remove these things with which the magic was worked? He said, no, for I have been cured by God, and I am afraid that this action may spread evil amongst my people. Later on, the well was filled up with earth. So he didn't want people to get healed in the same way he got healed, sounds like. That's it seems similar confusing. To, yeah, it seems similar to Christian tendencies to turn away from slash malign folk medicine and healing techniques in favor of, like, faith healing. Which is why this was brought up after, you know, the teaching of Muhammad to say, like, no more using those charms and amulets you can buy out on the street. Here he kind of went to a place where they were using folk healing. He was like, nope, just use God. That's what I did. And it worked fine. Yeah, it does sound like that. Yeah, Uh, it goes on to say the prophet in this story not only does not dwell on details when asked about them, he also refuses to bring up what materials that were used to bewitch him. But he also orders the well and its contents to be filled up with earth, buried forever, as if not to leave any trace or any witness of this act of bewitching. In doing so, he certainly doesn't want to leave any magical material someone from the community might use. So that's weird, because then it's, like, implying that he still believes in it, but he, because he did something about it, if he thought that it would just be fine if God did it totally, then he would just ignore it. Yes, goes on to say here that, but beyond that, the prophet is also implicitly asking people to take for granted what he told them without any manifest proof. It's a kind of a departure from the main theme of this episode, because it's really the only story within the research I did here that um, looks at this with looks at these tales with a sort of side eye. The rest is kind of empowering and kind of inclusive, like of all cultures and all these different religious practices coming together to mix theology with science and medical research. But this is the one particular tale, and it just, it just kind of sucks that Muhammad's involved in it. That really stresses like God healed me. Don't ask questions. It's fine. 
No, don't look over there. That hole might have... No, fill, that, fill the fucking hole in. Fill the hole. Yeah, all right. Yeah, no, God did it. Like, I think that's more like a literary examination of the Quran versus, like, saying something about Islam. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. All right. Let's move on to something that I find to be truly, uh, truly delicious. Drinking the words of God. Why are we drinking the words of God? Because we're talking about the Quran as healing energy now. Okay, so a healing technique, or what is it? Yes, this shall be a healing technique. Okay. One practiced for centuries, maybe even to this day. Okay. Would you like to learn more? Sure. Healing technique. Healing technique. Although God as a healer is not one of the 99 divine names, he is mentioned six times in the Quran as such. Moreover, the holy text itself is represented as having a therapeutic value in Quran 1782. This is where it gets good. In Quran 2680, God is said to cure ailments and, quote, Whenever I am sick, he heals me. As one prophetic tradition mentions, the best medicines are honey and the Quran. So here we go. Since its advent, Islam made it clear that nothing other than the words of God or his names or the Arabic letters with which the Quran was conveyed could be brought into a spell, a charm, or an incantation. Muslims endeavored to comply with these rules. So essentially, there are verses in the Quran in which healing is mentioned. Okay. You take those verses, you dissolve them into liquid, and then you imbibe them. Are you dissolving the pages, or yes. are you writing them down and like putting the ink? Both. They can be. They can take both forms. Okay, so you can drink a cup of words, mm-hmm. and that can help you be less ill somehow. Yeah. Okay. Drinking the words of God seems to involve the whole body in the process of change. This is viewed as an almost alchemical process, where the swallowing of this liquid transmutes the sick person into a newly healed being. It's holistic alchemy. Okay, You're doing a whole me. body approach to healing by literally drinking the words of God. And it's amazing, and I love it. Some beliefs were held by different traditions across uh, the Near East. It is reported that a certain pious Egyptian by the name of Naneferkapata heard that the god Doth had written books of magic with his hand, so he undertook a voyage to find it. Once in possession of the book, Naneferkapata, a good scribe and very wise man had a new sheet of papyrus brought to him. He wrote on it every word that was in the book before him. He soaked it in beer, then he dissolved it in water. When he knew it had dissolved, he drank it and knew everything that had been written in it. Don't you think he would have known it by, like, writing it down first? Yeah, it seems more likely to be the case, but I like that he just, like, chugged it. Well... And became full of the knowledge. It could be that he knew it better because that he imbibed it, I guess. But I feel like reading it and then writing it all down also would help you remember a good amount of it. <laughs> That's fair. But I also feel like that would be the case if he wrote it down like multiple times and just had a whole, like a tasting platter of these sacred texts written by Toth. Yeah. Because if I just rewrite it once, I'm not really going to get it. I mean, it's probably pretty dense too. It's like a magical book. That esoteric magical writings are dense as shit. Well, maybe it was a DIY book, so it was really easy. Like, put cup on table. Magic for kids. Yeah. Throw dust in cup. Throw cup on person. Demon god. It could be like that. I don't know if that's a ritual in any way. probably isn't, but, you know. Throw some demon dust on it. 
I really enjoy this uh, concept because it very much feels like the merging of folkloric traditional medicine and belief with mainline faith. Do you remember in episode seven, Weird Bible Stuff, when I did that tale about God telling one of the people to eat a parchment of his words? Yes. It's like that. I think I have that tale here um, because they're saying there's context for this practice of drinking the words of God in the Old Testament where one finds the procedure of drinking written sacred words, but in a slightly different context because it's it's a trial. For finding out if a woman has committed adultery. The man's not on trial. The woman is. And it's a really shitty story that goes along with it, which I'm gonna like not read it all because it's it's a it's a an account from the time of how this trial is supposed to be undertaken. But the the rundown of it is that if a woman was accused of adultery, they would make her drink water into which was written a curse that when dissolved, the woman would chug and swear an oath of innocence. Um, if she swore falsely, the curse in the water would convict her through a physical manifestation, making her infertile. But if she... Damn. Yeah. How would they tell? I I sat there in the dark (laughs) thinking about this for a long time. Wow. I mean, What is like, there has to be, there has to be some historical basis for this. Okay. But if you're sleeping around, which, you know, probably not in this instance. Yeah, she probably is innocent. But I mean, maybe she could have been, and still, there's no reason to be that upset about it. It says um, they dissolve it in barley, which could be alcoholic, but it's still not going to make you infertile. Well, okay, so the curse could be. Okay, so there could be something. Oh, there could be a lot in play here. They could just, if they think if they want her to be guilty, they could put poison in it or something that would fuck her up. I mean, they could do whatever. Exactly. But also, patriarchy's like, patriarchy's just going to do what patriarchy's going to do. If you're going to be infertile, you know, that solves a lot of your problems, honestly, in that, in that time period, if you didn't want to be tied down to marriage and whatever. Because children really just, they really tie you up in there. You're really kind of stuck. I like your uh, not-centric language here. Yeah. You're really tied to whoever with that situation. Anyway, yep. Drinking the Quran never replaced actually reciting it for protection from evil. In medieval times, just as today, Muslims believe the recitation of the Quran 2.255, also known as the verse of the throne, to expel evil jinn, and is the main go-to. Kind of use your Catholic knowledge. What's that power of Christ compels you thing? Like, what's the big go-to for, like, getting rid of demons? Well, now the Catholic Church has kind of backtracked on exorcisms in the sense that, like, They're trying to say, like, there are some exorcisms, but they're very rare, and it's usually, like, some sort of illness that the person is experiencing. But traditional exorcism have to do with a bunch of crucifixes and holy water and um, a recitation of Bible verses and also phrases like, the power of Christ compels you to leave. Like it's like I walk through the valley of darkness and all that. God's my shepherd. Oh, shit. Am I confusing that for Samuel Jackson's monologue in Pulp Fiction, which was made up, but it sounded real? I don't know what. I think that's what I'm doing. It is. I, there are probably specific exorcism-y prayers, but I'm not a, you know, like a witch doctor from Catholic Church, so I don't know. That's what they call them, yes? I, there's some name. They have, like, bishops oh, they were and actually, They used to be called the witch, extra finders, bitches, yeah, the witch fighter general. Bishops you said bitches. 
whoops extra, extra bishops and like fancy bishops and their hats are different it's like i don't know they got someone's in charge of it so yes up in there so the <laughs> so not only was the the words of the quran used in healing by actually literally consuming it and drinking it um but of course like in many other religions recitation of quranic verses you are said, said to, that. yeah i know i'm recapping after our little sidetrack okay um yeah they were written on amulets written on body parts the forehead the palm things from the quran yes okay. to protect one from jinn especially jinn okay. I mean, that's generally the name of the game tonight that's what we're talking about moving on we'll get to names and the use of names in dispelling jinn like people's names or just names of things well we're we're in the t- we're into islamic arab history now so it's just one name and that's the name of god that's the only name that could be used and it's the only name you really want to go for so you just say god all the time or do you say is there a specific islamic name for god the most common practice in the medieval times was to recite and write down the most beautiful names of god to be protected from wicked jinn it was through the repetition of the mystical divine name uh forgive my pronunciation ism ala al-azam the greatest name of god which is above all the others this could heal the person possessed by jinn. Among all his names, Allah is the most perfect. It is composed of four Arabic letters, which is believed to correspond to the four elements, the four cardinal points, and the four seasons, which I find interesting. That is interesting. It's all fours, as opposed to the Christian Western belief of the Holy Trinity, or your triangles. It's a four-based four system. Versus three. Yes. Trinity versus quadruplet. Yeah, quintuplet? No, quin is Quad. five. Quad. Quadru. Quadru. Quartet? Quartet, yeah. Yeah, there it is. Triplet versus quartet. I don't know if that's Which right. I also find, I, I <laughs> pers- in thinking about this, kind of see something that's hard to reconcile, which is, based on what we've said earlier about demons and associate, their names associated with uh, illnesses, and getting that name and reciting that name to get, gain power over it and exercise that force, a demonic force, it seems like having the power, or having one's full name gives you power over that thing and then you use that you wield that name against the evil jinn. Is it then that hard to reconcile having a power over God? Yeah, no, you're not controlling God. God is using you as the vessel yeah. to stop her evil. You're just invoking the power of God to run through you and to mess up the demon or the jinn or whatever. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, you're not controlling God. No. God is outside of Oh yeah, a mortal understanding and exactly grasp. as we mentioned earlier, like the the verse of the throne is all about God being above and beyond any power in our in our realm. He's above anything, anything we can ever conceive of. So any kind of malevolent force that might be enacted upon you through the power of God could be easily vanquished. Okay, so the verse of the throne is what? Can you say it again? The verse of the throne was said to expel evil jinn and is commonly the most uh, or it was in medieval Islam the most commonly recited Quranic verse to dispel evil. Okay, so it was like the special prayer for evil stuff. Exactly. So, in the Porter and the Three Ladies from the uh, Arabian epic The Knights, the pious Muslim princess fights a sorcerer genie who transforms a man into an ape. She succeeds after an atrocious struggle and unremitting recitation of the greatest name of God to bring back the ape to his original human form. However, at the end of the battle, both princess and Ginny die, 
worn out by the ruthlessness of the attacks and the efforts wielded to achieve their respective goals. Quote, the speaker was the princess who had burned the Afrit, and he had become a heap of ashes. Then she came to us and said, Reach me a cup of water. They brought it to her, and she spoke over it words we understood not, and sprinkling me with it cried, By virtue of the truth and by the most great name of God, I charge thee to return to thy former shape. And behold, I shook, and before me was a man as before, save that I had utterly lost an eye. I love that he just throws that at the end, just, and I lost my eye. Well, it could be that thing of magic where, like, every transformation... Mm, everything has its price, dearie. Yeah, there's a cost. Mm, the bill comes due. That shit? Yeah. Yeah. Not an ape man anymore, but... Don't got an eye. That sucks. Yeah, so he got turned into an ape, and then he lost an eye getting turned back. But, I mean, it's better than continuing to be an ape, I guess. Yeah, there's a bunch of conflicting and varied beliefs and accounts of how to use the name of God to dispel Jin and Genie. Mm-hmm. But this one in particular, I, I just personally gravitated towards. Ahmad ibn Ali al-Buni from the year 1225, he was a prominent mathematician who wrote on the esoteric denomination of Arabic letters in his magnum opus, Shams al-Ma'arif. He said that by writing the Sufi invocation of God, which was Hua, on a blue cloth and inciting a jinn to smell it, they would be dispelled. That's cool. It's very cool, and I love every part of it, because, yeah, so you gotta be really close. Blue is the smell. divine color? The author here assumes the jinni is embodying a visible shape in front of the human, and he is close enough to sniff the cloth on which the divine name is written. Moreover, we are not told why the author suggests the use of blue as a cloth, or a red or a green one, nor why the act of smelling the cloth would burn the evil genie. Interesting. Well, it's just like, that's how they end this chapter. You're <laughs> just like, also this thing about a fucking cloth blue makes the genie smell it. I don't know why. No one else seems to know why. It was written 800 years ago. Fuck it. It's in the book. Yeah. I mean, there's lots of reasons why it could be blue. I mean, if you're thinking of, like, like lapis lazuli. Yeah, I mean, it's pure a... Pure blue pigment. Yeah, lapis and, lazuli has a, to- a lot of religious and religious connotations to it. Or, like... Divine connotations to it. Continuing to postulate wildly, gin are fire creatures and water is blue. So if you use a blue cloth, it has water in it. Water element. Who knows? It's interesting. Could yeah. be any of those things. One ancient source, or not ancient, well, I guess ancient, 1368 source, said uh, they once visited a man who was possessed by an evil genie. So Al Shibli, the source, wrote the letter Kaf, which is spelled Q-A-F. It's just an Arabic character letter on the possessed man's palm, then drew seven circles around it. He then asked the possessed to lick it, and Al Shibli claims the man was instantly healed. So I'm seeing, like, just sensory shit. Licking, smelling. Licking music. also has to do with water, too, though. It's like you're putting out the oh, fire of possession or something. Hmm? Bitten on it. Like smelling? Smelling is usually a wet act. Well, there's a lot of cultures where, like, you spit on something. Yeah. And that's, like, Keeping the devil away. Or if you're Fremen, you spit to show honor. You spill your own water for them. I mean, okay. It's true. You're right. Good point, Maddie. Like in our Italian folklore, part one, you could spit three times to get the Malocchio away. So we got sniffing and we got licking. Mm-hmm. How about blowing, though? 
blowing. Yeah, there are many accounts of individuals with epilepsy that were seen as being possessed by jinn. Oh um, yeah, that's a that's a cross-cultural thing. Yeah, oh very much so. Quran mentions the word majin 11 times in relation to madness and epilepsy. In seven instances it refers to the prophet directly. Muhammad's opponents believed he was jinn possessed or epileptic and a genie was dictating to him the words. In three instances God replies to these accusations. So, not only is it just individuals throughout the history of Islamic and Islamic culture. The prophet himself was also afflicted by epileptic seizures. seizures. Yeah, thank you. But the one I wanted to bring up, there were the instances I wanted to describe to you, Maddie, which is something I think you and I should try. Uh, there's a story of a woman who brought her epileptic son to him, the prophet. He opened his mouth and puffed three times into it, reciting the following, In the name of God, the compassionate, the merciful, go away, enemy of God, for I am the servant of God. He told the woman to bring the boy after a while. She returned and told the prophet he was completely healed. I just really, really get down with the idea of just puffing into your mouth while in between saying these things. You want to, you want to give it a shot? You want to blow into my mouth? You, I'm asking you to blow into my mouth. Okay. <laughs> get out of him! Keep puffing. Get get out of him. Uh, get. Yeah. I do feel bad. Get him. Get him out of there. <laughs> <laughs> this is good. Yeah. All right. Okay. Thanks for that. Yeah. You feel unpossessed? I feel something. <laughs> <laughs> it was also common to recite the specific words Depart, enemy of God. I am his messenger. It was alleged that evil jinn would leave immediately upon the, from the person. Theologians warn Muslims to exercise caution, for evil jinn are capable of luring them time and time again. They're sneaky sneakers. They'll get you over and over again with their tricksies. Oh, yeah, so the demons always want to go for the holiest because then it's like an extra mor- mortal blow to, like, the morality of God. They get that juicy, juicy core. The more pious and sanctified you are, the, the tastier that little sweet meat's going to be to a jinn or any kind of demon with malevolence. Because not all jinn are evil, and not all even evil is jinn. It's extra satisfying to have the good fall. Oh, yeah. Ooh. The harder they fall. The, yeah. You take down the holiest of them all. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's that's true. Now it is also alleged, often in classical Islam, that the threshold of a house holds a particular kind of power, and that specifically, if one is to pour water or beat their child while on the threshold of a house, they are opening themselves up wildly to possession or madness by a jinn. You're not supposed to beat your children, is that why? I mean, yeah, that's how I read it initially. But let's get into it. So why, you might ask, a threshold? It's a the threshold, you know, it's a, it's a spot it's an between opening. two. It's a, yeah, it's a boundary. It's a frontier. It's a symbolic opening. So it's, that's why a threshold is a thing. Quote, as a boundary symbol, it is the line meeting of the natural and supernatural, and the Al-Gaib and our world, more or less. Therefore, one can surmise if one lingers there, one almost risks stumbling into the other side, into the invisible realm where jinn lurk. I wonder, and... I hypothesize here that that would apply doubly to graveyards or mosques or sacred sites then, right? Yeah, because then you're going into the area of, like, a spiritual realm. Where the line between our world and theirs is thinner, the fabric is more sheer, the fog is parted. It's very, like, Dia de los Muertos. Yeah, exactly. Pouring water over the threshold, people thought it could be dangerous because they believed water might mix in its flow imaginal and physical realms, and hence bring forth the jinn. Let's discuss. The fuck does that mean? 
But they're saying like when you pour water over a sacred boundary, like a threshold, you could then blur the boundary and mix the realm. Yeah, I don't think it has to be a sacred boundary. It's just it's like we discussed a minute ago, like a place where that separation is less delineated. But they just said that thresholds have spiritual significance, so it would be a sacred boundary. Okay. So in closing, spiritual healing was considered, or spiritual healing considered the human being as a microcosm and the universe as the macrocosm in Islamic tradition. Both stressed everything bears the sign of the creator and should be dealt with as such. There's the yawn from Maddie that I associate with tuckered out episodes. Don't worry, baby. We're nearly done. From their writings, one concludes that the exorcist is almost a kind of saint who must lead a life of perfect piety and solitude and abstinence, and totally, be totally dev- devoted to prayers and meditation. Classical Islam didn't consider the exorcist a Promethean man working against the religion, but rather a pontifical man whose success was bestowed upon him by no one else but God. Furthermore, warding off evil jinn was not an action, act of rejection of medicine. Islamic magic has never hampered Muslims for, from probing scientific cures for sick and epileptic people. Because medicine was also ingrained in the religion itself, it couldn't get in the way of scientific process. Islamic physicians built up a huge and intricate medical corpus. This all-embracing literature was not confined to strict medical knowledge in the sense that modern medical literature is, but rather it was blended with philosophy, natural science, mathematics, astrology, alchemy, biology, spirit healers, charms, and religion. In this sense, it is what we call today interdisciplinary. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. Yeah, it was like a holistic approach towards an understanding of all the conditions of the human body and spirit and soul. Mm -hmm. Still today, it is difficult for many Westerners to comprehend how classical Islam blended in religion, medicine, and spiritual healing. Most of the West still views the progress of humanity as evolving from magic to religion and finally to science. In spite of the assertion of many contemporary anthropologists who reject the ideas of their predecessors, and maintain that they don't see this linear progress progress in every culture that they study. I mean, I think it's generous to say Western. I think it's a it's a white supremacy technique. Oh yeah, 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 for sure. to, certainly. Like, sanitize yeah. history from culture and discovery. And then, oh, this these people and their beliefs and their gods. It's just Jesus here and our God. I mean, there's ancient medical techniques that have to do with holistic teachings yeah, that are cultural in nature. That the treatments work. Because they're yes. also medicinal, but they oh, developed hand in hand because of the cultures that they existed in. And there's been a, a push since like the Renaissance or whatever in Europe to divide the spiritual and the like quote unquote scientific mm-hmm. discovery. The enlightenment and all that. I agree with everything you just said, Maddie. Good point. Okay, great. <laughs> what did you think? I think that's really interesting. I do think that it makes sense, especially without, like, modern technology to, like, study microscopic situations, that the illness could easily be explained by something that's, like, a spirit or some sort of malevolent energy, because it's just as invisible as a virus to the human eye, so what's the difference? Mm -hmm. To explain it that way in a cultural context. And to treat it with just as much weight. And seriousness, as you know, to say it's a demon isn't to discount it as unimportant or something that'll just go away. You still try to treat the the problem. Right. So you're treating it within a cultural context and you're also using scientific and medical techniques along with the traditional practice. So, I mean. Yeah, it's a whole body approach. 
Makes sense. So what'd you think? Do you think you learned something? You don't seem as tuckered out as usual. I feel like I've kept you more engaged, less engaged. I don't know. It is You're probably stressed because I was so haphazardly organized this time. I did find that stressful. I would request that you I'll write up write a more succinct uh, script, script next and time. paraphrase. Yeah, 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 yeah. What thing do I have to say? So if you would like to contact us about really interesting healing stories in your culture or in as related to Jin or as related to other spirits. Or any uh, corrections for me, because I'm sure, I'm sure there was something out there. Or awesome stories. Please email addstoryteller at gmail.com. You can also support our podcast on Anchor FM by giving a monthly or one-time contribution. Mm-hmm. If you want to advertise, you can send us an email. Tell your friends. We just want to have more people listening and hanging out, and word of mouth is always the best. I just appreciate that you're here listening at the end. This is usually when I cut out of even my favorite podcast, so if you're still hearing this, you're a real trooper. That being said, I'll let you on with the secret. This is even news to Maddie. I'm thinking we start the uh, ADD Storytelling OnlyFans account so you really get that money coming in. What do you think, Maddie? No. Okay. Well, thank you again for being here. (laughs) This has been fun. I've been Tucker. Maddie. You I'm are Maddie. you are Maddie. I am I was Maddie and I am Maddie. Still Maddie. Okay. I, I be Maddie. And he was featured prominently on the episode, so the cat was Tucker as well. His name is also Tucker. Right. Damn it. Wanted to say goodbye. Good night, everyone.